Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. Season two of HBO Succession is back, and The Ringer's Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are here to give you the latest in Roy family drama. Every Sunday night, they'll be breaking down what we just saw on our new show called Number One Boys, a Succession After Show. You can tune in live on The Ringer's Twitter every Sunday night right after the episode ends. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, but before we get started, I want to direct you to my piece on my beloved Lance Lynn, the best pitcher in the American League, for real this time. That's now up at TheRinger.com, so you can go read that after you're done listening to this episode, uh, which we're going to get started right now with Zach Cram. All right, let's uh, kick this off with Zach Cram. Zach, thank you for joining me. Hello. Uh, you want to talk about dingers, which is good because we got lots of them. Yeah, we've had lots of them for a few years now, but this year more than ever before. And it's gotten me thinking as we've seen both individual records being set and team records being challenged uh, as we approach the end of the season. I think I want to have a conversation about whether the overall environment saps some of the excitement from these record chases. So we can talk about that. I also put together just a little game um, where I came up with a couple different possible record chases. And I am curious how excited you are about each of these potentialities. So just like give me a rating from one to 10, where one, you're not excited at all. 10, you're following every at bat to see uh, if this record could be broken on each of these following records. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So the first one is a team home run record within the team. So basically, like the other day, the Twins set the franchise record for home runs. Do you care about team franchise home run records? Uh, On a one to 10, like a three? Yeah. Like maybe if it was, I I think that's an interesting piece of trivia, but unless it's my team, like I'm not following along. That's the kind of thing I look up at the end of the season and go, oh, that's nice. I don't think even with my favorite team until the Yankees set the overall home run record a couple years ago, I couldn't have even named their actual franchise record for most team home runs. And I think if you don't know what the record is, it's hard to gin up any excitement about potentially yeah. breaking um, it. Three might, might actually be too high. Okay, so yeah. next is a little more uh, ambitious. It's the overall team home run record, which the Twins have a chance of breaking this year. The record was set by the Yankees in 2017 at 267 home runs. The Twins right now are on pace for 313. Yeah, this is like a five or six. This is the only one that I'm interested in that is going to get broken this year. And that's just, that's for two reasons. One, it's the twins. And like, this is sort of, uh, it is more on brand for last year's Yankees to break this record than it is for this year's twins to break the record. The other thing is they're going to fucking demolish it. Yeah, I should, like they're going to get there before September first, and you know they're going to put daylight between them and the previous record. Yeah, I so, misspoke. That the Yankees did it last year, not twenty seventeen. Was it twenty seventeen? No, it, it was last um, year. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's right. Because that was the that was Stan's first year. So anyway, yes, I'm interested in that record. Like I said, because of who's doing it and how much they're going to break it by. Yeah, I think if it were not. If they were going to break the record with like 270 home runs, I would be less interested. But the fact that they're going to break it by so much is 
uh, adds another layer to it, which leads me to the next record, which is the home runs allowed record. So that record is currently held by the 2016 Reds, who allowed 258 home runs. The Orioles are already at 248 this year. They should break it this week. They're on pace for 337. One to ten, where are you? No, I don't care. Even Uh, though they're going to break it by so much. A two. Yeah, I mean, home run allowed records are, I think by definition, not as interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only, like, there's no, I don't even know who's given up the most home runs as a pitcher uh, for an individual season. Burt Blylevin allowed 50. Oh, was it? Really? Um, That's interesting. The other thing is, like, that doesn't necessarily mean you're bad. Uh, if you give up a lot of home runs, maybe the 2016 Reds and the 2019 Orioles are the the wrong teams to make that argument about. But like Justin Verlander's given up a ton of home runs. Uh, I followed just because Jamie Moore broke it, uh, broke the individual career home runs allowed record um, when he was with the Phillies. Uh that I was sort of aware of. And I think that just, you know, sort of speaks to, and he broke Robin Roberts record. Uh, and Robin Roberts is one of the best pitchers ever. Uh, so, you know, maybe within a season, within a team that says less uh, about, or that says more about quality, but like, I don't know if you're going to individual, but individual, individual records like that just mean you're pitching a lot of innings to me. Yeah. And from the team perspective, I think this is an example of where the current ball dilutes uh the excitement because if you look at the home run hit record obviously like teams in the 1960s weren't hitting a lot of home runs and the record was set just last year the previous record was held by the 97 mariners but even within the top of the home runs hit leaderboard you have teams that were playing in either medium or lower home run eras like the 2010 blue jays are tied for fourth all time 2010 was not a hugely uh home run hitting era but that's when you had jose bautista sort of the start of the Blue Jays run. So that's a memorable team for that reason. If you look at the home runs allowed record, the top five are all since 2016 and the top 10 are all either from the steroids era or since 2016. So basically the only way to rise atop this leaderboard is to allow a lot of home runs in these home run hitting eras. And there's not that much, I think that's differentiating these teams from one another. Yeah. There's not like an interesting story. Yeah. And that's that that goes back to the twins thing. That's an interesting story to me. Yeah. I think a record, you not only need the number behind it, but you need the story too, especially if it's going to be something memorable. Uh, And that leads to the next one, which are the remaining ones are all individual player records. So naturally, they probably have some more storylines. But the first one is individual team home run records. So the fact that Pete Alonso is going to set the Mets franchise record for homers. Jorge Soler is going to set the Royals franchise record one to 10. How excited are you? Uh, I'd say like, that's like a six or seven. I think, like you said, individual records are, I think by, by their nature, more interesting than team records. Uh, it helps in the, in Alonzo and the Mets case that there's like a, a coherent narrative, not only about Alonzo, but like, I remember Todd Hundley, uh, uh, setting that record. And like that was he was sort of an interesting player in an interesting time. So I'm more excited about that than the the Royals record. The Royals just setting the the Royals home run record. Just who is the definitive Royals power hitter? Well, you know, and I think that's where I'm less interested in this. I'm really only interested in single season team records if they've stood for a really long time. I kind of view this like the Olympics, where when I look at I'm a big running fan, and when I look at like world records for running 
I'm less interested in the ones that have been set recently and just keep dropping by a second or two every year. And I'm much more interested in the ones that were set in 1995 and haven't been broken since. The Wade Van Niekirk run. And yeah, there you go. And like the Royals are a perfect example for this. I was so much more interested in the Royals franchise home run record when it was held by Steve Balboni from 1985, where no Royal had out hit him in 30 years, even in the steroids era. But then Mike Moustakas has the record now, and that's just so much less captivating to me. There's so much less of a story there. Just, oh yeah, there was a Royal who hit a lot of home runs when other guys were hitting home runs. I think the fact that so many franchises might see their home record records turnover this year uh makes each individual one less compelling if that makes sense i think that makes a ton of sense okay next up is any other individual home run record that is not bonds's so like the rookie home run record uh alonzo is currently on pace for 52 home runs aaron judge's rookie home run record is 52 home runs or any other home run record like uh aquino from the reds is setting with the most home runs in x games mark are any of those interesting to you the home runs at X Games marks are more fun, more what uh, Ben and Sam would have called fun facts than uh, like actual stats or trivia to me. Um, that just feels like that feels like the color you use in a story rather than the story itself. I actually I'm a big fan of the rookie home run record. I think that's a uh, an important um, an important mark because uh, speaking of marks, like it was Mark McGuire's for forever. And it was so like, that's why it was so special when Aaron judge broke it a couple years ago. And I think even though that's a relatively recent record, like if Alonzo it's, it's at a point now where it really like it, I don't know if getting over 50 was big because like just getting to 49, it, it I was almost surprised that nobody had broken it before judge. Um, cause I guess maybe this is just because I, I came up, you know, I, I, the baseball I learned to watch was steroid era baseball, but 49 home runs doesn't seem like a record that ought to stand for 30 years. So, um, I'm interested in, yeah, I'm definitely interested in Alonzo breaking the, the rookie home run record if and when he gets there. Well, what's interesting is I believe judge and McGuire are the only two rookies ever to hit even 40 home runs. I remember, I yeah, I remember because Bellinger hit like thirty nine. Yeah, as and a rookie that's that the year. nationally record. Yeah, so, um, so Alonso's going to become the thirty. I just checked. Judge with fifty two and McGuire with forty nine are the only rookies ever to reach even forty. So that shows the distance between them and every other rookie. It's pretty incredible. So I guess that's almost more interesting to me because uh, Alonso's going to do that regardless. Than yeah. whether he ends up with 51 or 53. I'm still interested in, in him getting to 51 or 53. Okay, next up is just in general, hitting 50 home runs. How excited are you by somebody racing for 50 home runs in this era? Uh, six. I, I think that that's, I'm, I'm more excited now by that now than I would have been during the steroid era because, uh, like it feels like the steroid era turned 35 home run hitters into 50 home run hitters and 45 home run hitters into 65 or 70 home run hitters. And the juice ball, like it feels like it turns 12 guys who hit 12 home runs into guys who hit 25 home runs. And that's just not without those spectacular uh, individual marks, the aggregate is less exciting. Like a couple years ago, it was was it twenty seventeen? It was sixteen or seventeen that that Freddie Galvis hit twenty home runs, and there was like some 
outrageously like the the record for guys who hit 20 home runs in a season was was just shattered and uh you know 20 home run hitters are that interesting to me but like 50 still means something yeah and even amid this high home run era like you're saying we don't get that many guys reaching 50 if you go by decade so before 1990 there were uh 16 uh 17 players in major league history who were 17 seasons in which a player reached 50 home runs. So that included like four Ruth seasons, a few mantle seasons, et cetera. Um, in the nineties, there were 12. So that speaks to just the explosion of home runs we had in the nineties. But even in the two thousands, there were 12 more because you had bonds and Sosa at the beginning of the decade, you had Rodriguez through the decade. And then you had like Ryan Howard's 58 Homer season and David Ortiz hit 54 one year. So it was still about at least once a season, a guy was hitting 50 home runs. Now this decade, there have only been four judge and Stanton in 2017, Chris Davis in his big breakout year and Jose Bautista in his breakout year back in 2010. So even toward the latter half of this decade, which has seen really high home run totals throughout the league, We've only seen two 50 home run seasons. So as somebody who wasn't really paying much attention during the steroid era, I was like too young to follow the Sosa. Your eyes weren't focusing. Yeah, during I was the too young to follow the Sosa McGuire chase. I like vaguely remember the Bonds chase. That's the first one I really remember. I am still excited by a 50 home run season. Even this year with a lot of home runs, the top guys are only on pace for like 52, 53. And I think that's also where the player comes in like as a fan of baseball esoterica, I'm really interested in the seasons where like Greg Vaughn hit 50 home runs. That's interesting to me, but it's also really cool when a superstar hits 50 for the first time, which Mike Trout, for instance, has a chance of doing this year. I think that would be pretty interesting. I, yeah, I want to backtrack a little bit and say like team home run, run records. If it's in like the mid to upper fifties, those get really exciting. Um, you know, when Stan got there, when Ryan Howard got there, Ken Griffey Jr. with the Mariners with 56, like those are numbers that, that I still remember. I think it and honestly, like I would like it. Weirdly, like Trout sort of feels weird just because I don't think of him as purely a home run hitter the way I, I would Stanton or Judge or, um, you know, maybe Pete Alonso turns into this definitive home run hitter over the next few years. Um, but like. Griffey getting into the 50s was big. You know, Stanton getting into the 50s for the first time, like you said, was big. Ryan Howard, you know, Ortiz, these like Titanic power hitters. Um, so like if, if Trout does it, I know Solaire's up on the I actually do not have the uh a good handle on on the MLB home run leaderboard right now. Um here we go. Like if Trout or Christian Yelich, and they're tied for the major league lead right now with 39. Like one of them getting to fifty would just feel weird. Like it, like a they just they're just good players, you know, great players uh, all around. As opposed to you know, I guess Cody Bellinger's turned into a great all around player, but I still think of him as a power hitter first. And so it would be, I weirdly it would be more impressive if like Alonzo or Bellinger or Nelson Cruz got way up there. It would be more impressive than if Trotter Yelich got to 50 or 52 or 55. Yeah, I think there is a difference in kind if someone like Nelson Cruz hits 50 versus Trout. The one thing I'll say about Trout is it's far, far, far too early to even consider this. But by the end of the season, Mike Trout will have the fifth most home oh, runs boy. of any player through age 27. 
and I just want to make a note that obviously Alex Rodriguez was ahead of the pace. He has 40 more home runs than anyone else through age 27. And for myriad reasons, he fell short of Bonds' record uh, in fifth place right now. The guy who Trout is going to pass soon is Albert Pujols, his teammate. Uh, and we have seen how his chase is going to fall short. But just like over the next few years, keep it in the back of your mind, especially if Mike Trout, who now, I, I mean, it's still weird to think of him that way because I still kind of think of him as the guy who burst onto the scene stealing 49 bases. But he's going to hit maybe 50 home runs for the first time. He's going to lead the league in home runs for the first time, probably. He's a power hitter now, and it's not out of the question to start uh, watching those leaderboards and seeing how quickly and how high. I had never considered that. Yeah, I guess like we always sort of did talk in abstract terms about Trout getting into his 30s and like moving the left field and beefing up, you know, insofar as that's possible for him to beef up anymore uh, and turning into that 45, 50 homer guy. I had never considered like, I guess like the the arc would sort of look Hank Aaron-ish probably. Yeah, because uh, Aaron just, never hit 50 home runs, but he hit 30s and 40s every single year, which Trout has basically done since his what sophomore season and if you consider the fact that he's missed a lot of time due to injury that if that carries forward he, then he's not going to have a chance but if those injuries even out a little bit and he settles into 42 to 45 homers per year it's not unreasonable and you look at like Hank Aaron's like the kind of player he was like he had a lot more in common with Trout as a player than with somebody like Mark McGuire, for instance, like, you know, home run hitting was just a byproduct of him being a great all around hitter. Like I was just describing Trout or Yelich. So who knows? So the last one I have written down here is just 60 home runs. I'm still at a 10. If someone has a chance at reaching 60 home runs, I'm watching every at bat. I did that with Stanton a few years ago. There hasn't been a 60 home run hitter since Bonds in 2001. So even with a lot of home runs, maybe there's a little bit of an asterisk there, but it's still super exciting. Yep. I'm at a nine and I'm for 60. I'm at a nine. And uh, the only reason it's a nine is because I need somewhere to go. If somebody actually challenges 73 or 762. I honestly like even with the ball like this, I'm not even considering the possibility that someone could challenge 73. That's such a big upgrade from what Stanton did a couple years ago and Stanton was hitting home runs like nobody I had ever seen before uh the other thing is like we talk about the ball being juiced now and obviously the ball is probably juiced more than it's been in decades but if you think about when Bonds was setting his record when Sosa and Maguire were doing their chase it wasn't just steroids there's some compelling evidence that the ball was juiced then too so just juicing the ball doesn't seem like it would be enough to carry someone that high yeah, and you think about 98, not only was 98 an expansion year, but 1961 was too. And oh, I so didn't even think about a lot that. Of, yeah, Next I mean, there's expansion? not going to be expansion anytime soon, but like that's, they talked about that a lot, like back before everybody was like in between somebody finding Andrew and Mark McGuire's locker and everybody's all of a sudden at once deciding to give a shit about it. Uh, they said, oh, it's expansion. It's, you know, there's... 35 new pitchers in the league who aren't actually, you know, who wouldn't have been major league quality a year ago. Um, I don't know if there's anything to that, but imagine how many home runs Mike Trout could hit against expansion pitchers. I mean, imagine if that there was that talk about the, the diamondbacks. I mean, this was not serious talk, but the diamondbacks moving to Las Vegas. Like imagine if, uh, if we got, you know, there was pre-humidor cores too with, uh, 
with Bonds, who, I don't know, I'm, I'm saying this, I actually have no idea how many home runs he hit in course in 2001, <laughs> but he played there nine or ten times, so... Anyway, like, yeah, it's it's the the fucking all time home run record. Of course, there's not just one thing going on. You know, it, it takes a perfect storm of circumstances. You know, Bonds never got close to to seventy three again, even as he turned into an even better hitter down the road. So, so I think the takeaway is more mundane records uh, don't generate excitement because there are just so many home runs and so many records that kind of all come together and dilute but uh the top individual home run records are still still bring out the kid in us yeah and you know what like as far as baseball goes the home run like the individual home run records are like the fucking holy grail you know that is the thing and uh there's nothing else that i I don't honestly i don't know that there's an individual record in sports um, certainly not the last time it got broken, maybe just because the steroids of shine is coming off, come off, um, that like gets people excited for that. The only, you know, the, the only one I would say is if someone makes a run at DiMaggio, I, yeah, I think I, that would be the all time, like watching every single at bat. Well, talk about like the, not the combination of great story and great, uh, longevity. You know, I just don't know, like there's nothing in the NBA that, that comes close to to that maybe like in the NFL, like the individual rushing record. But like, I, I really feel like I'm reaching, you know, and apart from that, like you watch it's stuff that that happens, like maybe the the 100 meter dash at the Olympics or something like that. Um, and even then, I don't think anything comes close, in, in, at least in American sports, in terms of individual records to the home run record. And so it's, you know, uh, I, I'm with you. I don't think we're going to see uh, 73 challenge anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, even those lesser records, you know, we're, we're not even talking about this again, you know, with the exception of like maybe hitting streaks, you know, somebody getting over 30 to 40. Um, you know, we're not even talking about these le- lower quality, you know, lower tier of of records for for stolen bases or strikeouts or, or anything like that. Dingers are cool. Who knew? Yeah, you know, even as as somebody who uh, is, you know, relatively speaking, a, a dinger a skeptic, like it's the holy grail. Like I said, so I guess we'll we'll have to settle for for Pete Alonso breaking Todd Humley's record for now, but uh, you know, maybe someday tied with Carlos Beltran. To be clear, I know Mets, oh, okay. Mets fans only remember the 2006 Carlos Beltran season for a time he did not swing the bat, but he hit 41 homers that year. Pretty good. Carlos Beltran, a good all around player. It turns out. I'm sure more dingers will be hit between uh, now and when we talk next week. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure dingers were hit. If you're listening to this, like, right at 7 o'clock tonight, <laughs> I'm sure that you you could have watched a dinger or two. All right, Zach, I'll talk to you next week. Until then. Last thing you're probably thinking about is completing your last will or living trust, but August is National Make-A-Will Month, and the perfect time to do it with LegalZoom. LegalZoom has developed a straightforward way for you to protect your family and assets. It all starts with a last will or living trust estate plan. LegalZoom has a ton of online resources for you to figure out what's right for you, and if that's not enough, their network of independent attorneys can provide advice. LegalZoom isn't a law firm, so you won't be billed by the hour, and it's easy to fit into your busy schedule. Join more than a million people who've counted on LegalZoom for their will or living trust. 
trust. Make things easier for those you care about most. Check out LegalZoom's last will and living trust estate plans now during National Make-A-Will Month at LegalZoom.com. For special savings, be sure to enter code MLB in the referral box at checkout. That's code MLB for special savings only at LegalZoom.com, where life meets legal. All right. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast from The Athletic, Lindsay Adler. Lindsay, thanks for taking the time to talk. Thank you. So we're going to talk about the Yankees, obviously. Uh, You have (laughs) just watched Glaber Torres uh, beat the ever-loving shit out of the Orioles. He has 26 home runs on the season, uh, of which, uh, is it 12 or 13 are against the Orioles now? Um, 13. 13? So... uh, I don't know. Are they going to be able to count on him when the Orioles are invariably not in the playoffs? Um, I think so. Yes. I think of all of the guys on the roster, Flavor is probably one of the ones they need to worry about the least. Um, it's, it's, you know, Orioles aside, it's, it's definitely one of those things where I look at him and I'm like, how are you 22? I, I don't get it. It's, it's kind of upsetting. And so, I think Aaron Boone is, uh, I think he has a lot of, a lot of faith in whatever he asks Glaber to do. So he's been one of the few guys who, uh, was expected to be a starter on this team, uh, and has actually been in the lineup for pretty much the entire year. Uh, and this has led to the emergence of Gio Rochella, Mike Talkman, and all sorts of probably half a dozen other players, DJ LeMahieu, who have really seized roles. And you know, this was something when the Yankees were going through their their injury crisis earlier this season, uh, I thought actually might come back to, to benefit them, that they have gotten these guys used to playing every day, and now they just have incredible depth on their bench. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it's really given guys like Gio and Mike Talkman and even Cameron Maven after he's retooled a few things I think all the playing time has really given them a chance to kind of find themselves in that way and I think the whole situation has just really prepared the whole team for adversity I would say they seem just uh just really resilient and I guess if my whole team got injured and then I saw guys like Gio Rochella taking off like that I would feel pretty damn good about any struggles that came my way too yeah. So, how do how does that resilience sort of manifest itself as somebody who who you know watches the team up close? You know, I think I saw it most last weekend against the Red Sox. Um, I I think a baseball season is long and tough, and I think it's tough when you don't have outside reinforcement coming, as neither of those two teams did. And I think you know, it's it's. I was thinking back to like April, I guess it was when guys started dropping like flies. And I remember there was a day before we went on the road somewhere and someone else had been injured. And I remember the clubhouse just kind of felt like, like you could tell they were like, what, what the hell is going on? It was, it was a distinctly kind of like gloomy vibe. And now it's like someone like Aaron Hicks goes down and everyone just kind of shrugs. And even Hicks himself says like next man up, you know, like I'm, I'm sure everyone's really concerned and bothered by it, but you know, it's it's just even in the attitude they have when they talk about it, like listening to Ellen Batantis say, you know, this, this season has been really difficult for me personally, but I've been really comforted by the fact that the team hasn't actually needed me. You know, he said, mm-hmm. 
I would feel way worse about missing the entire season thus far if it felt like, you know, my presence was the difference. And so I think everyone can can kind of feel like I can go through my experience and, you know, get hurt, have slumps, things like that, and everyone else is going to pick me up. So this leaves them in a position where they're nine games up on the race in the division. They are, according to, I almost didn't bother looking up the odds, but baseball prospectus has them at 99.8% to make the playoffs. They are, for all intents and purposes, in. Uh, What's the goal, Yeah, I guess, apart from staying healthy for the the next seven weeks or so until they figure out who they're playing and and what they're, you know, what the, the seating is? Well, it's something that I'm really actually interested to see how they play out the next few weeks, especially with September coming, because, you know, to me, the goal, like you said, keep everyone healthy, keep everyone, you know, on a time, on a reasonable timetable so that, you know, the the big guys like, you know, Luke Voigt or even Edwin Encarnacion or Dylan and Severino so that they can come back when it's actually right. But the crazy thing is that this team of, for all intents and purposes, various randos is keeping pace with the Astros and Dodgers in the like winning percentage column. And so, you know, they have a real chance to sprint for home field advantage throughout the postseason. And I think they should do it. And obviously they will, they want to win every single game. But um, I guess September to me, the idea of kind of load management and how that will play out is actually something I'm really interested in, in given given the situation they have where they need to create opportunities to bring themselves to, you know, I guess, full strength heading into October. What I'm most interested in the Yankees or what I'm most interested in from the Yankees uh, perspective over the next few weeks is the rotation, which, every, you know, a lot has been mm-hmm. said and written about how they didn't go out and get pitching help at the deadline. Uh, it's They've got a couple guys, you know, James Paxson has, you look at his uh, overall numbers, they've been fine. You know, he hasn't been ace quality. You've written a lot about Masir Tanaka's struggle to um, to adapt his sinker uh, to the new baseball. Uh, and, you know, these pieces that they were counting for, that's to say nothing of Severino's on the shelf, uh, Jordan Montgomery's on the shelf, a couple of, you know, CC Sabathia is coming back soon, but he's on, on the aisle, has been there um, on and off. You know, it's, I'm interested to see what the, the rotation's going to look like, uh, you know, and how, like, there's a lot, there's just a ton of uncertainty. And like you said, this is a team that's keeping pace with the Dodgers and the Astros. And it's amazing. I think it speaks a lot to, uh, to the quality of their offense, certainly in their bullpen, but it's amazing to see a team with mm-hmm. a record this good with so many question marks uh, about the rotation. It's it's totally wild, you know. And I mean, <laughs> probably the best thing that can happen for them is that their offense just goes full bludgeon mode and then limits the number of games they need to send a starting pitcher out there for. But I <laughs> I, I think they're going to get creative in the postseason, and I think it's actually a really interesting predicament because most of the guys in their rotation have a lot of experience. You know, Domingo Herman is the only, you know, kind of younger and experienced guy. And so if you're Jay Happ and you've been in the league since what, 2007, are you really going to be happy with them putting an opener in front of you? If you, you know, if, if you're making a postseason 
quote unquote start, you know, and I, I think everyone is willing to do what it takes to win, but it's really hard to imagine the idea of saying to someone, you know, we're going to tinker with what you've always done, but I don't know how else they're going to really kind of get by. I think it's going to be a very interesting month for the bullpen. And I think all of the relievers know that. And I think actually the way to go back to the phrase load management, I think the way that the Yankees manage their relievers is really unique. Um, They philosophically won't use guys three days in a row, um, which is frustrating to a lot of the fan base when they're like, well, what the hell? Why isn't Adam Adovino available? But yeah, I, I think those those back end guys know that there's there's a lot of responsibility coming their way soon. Yeah, and that's something that I've always sort of wanted the Yankees to do because they've been built this way for it feels like a few years that they've had a mm-hmm. Tanaka or a, or a Severino at the front of the rotation, but they've only had like one or two guys who you can count on to be just nails in the postseason, and the rest of the the rotation's usually been a little bit you know, a little bit patchwork. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they've had these incredibly talented, incredibly deep bullpens. And I've always wanted them to go to something like a a three-man rotation uh, and take advantage of those off days and really ride that bullpen as far as it can go. And it struck me that I wonder if that's tougher to do if you're the Yankees, as opposed to a a team that's sort of expected to get by creatively like Oakland or Tampa or Cleveland. Um, And, you know, I'm, Curious as you know, somebody who's closer to the organization, whether you think there's anything any truth to that. No, you know that's that's something I think about too. Um, I think they've obviously really embraced the opener this year, but I think it's easy to justify when they've had you know three to four starters for a lot of the year, and they've played like eighteen double headers, so there's not really another option. Um, I think amongst Every organization in baseball, I think the Yankees have shown they'll do whatever it takes to win. Their commitment to winning is pretty much unrivaled. But no, it's it's something that, you know, if the Yankees get really creative with like a three-man rotation or, you know, even bullpenning postseason games, if it came down to it, it would definitely read very differently than if the Rays or Oakland did it. It would, there would be a lot more headlines, I think. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that they've developed this reputation. I think they've earned a reputation as a pretty smart organization. You just see, you know, their mm-hmm. their player development, for instance, the the you know stuff they've gotten out of uh, unheralded pitching prospects, for instance. Um, but they've done that without really being creative or weird. And it, you know, even like even mm-hmm. when they have leaned on the bullpen, it's just it's. Like a, it, it, it reads differently than when Oakland does it, for instance. Like the Yankees just go out and get the best relievers and then just line them up, you know, one after another, as opposed to Oakland sort of making mm-hmm. things work with, you know, turning Lou Trevino into, into a lockdown reliever or Liam Hendricks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really what should scare a lot of people throughout the league is that if the Yankees get in a position where, you know, I mean, I think at this point, let's say there's the Yankees Astros ALCS. I mean, we're all going to be talking about how the Astros fix every pitcher and the Yankees fix every position player. It's just, you know, I can, I can basically hear Joe Buck talking about it right now. And I think that's what should really scare people is their apparent ability to, uh, you know, 
turn turn a lot of guys into into gold. But you're right; it's it's a it's a tough thing when you look at their when you look at their pitching situation. And I guess you just kind of have to hope that uh, a lot of those those guys get get some cushion if you're a Yankees fan. So what can I mean? Severino is a big name. I mentioned Montgomery, uh, Jonathan Losega is mm-hmm. you know. Can we count on or I don't know, count on is probably too strong a word, but it is what are what's the probability that any of those guys can make it back in time to play a significant role in the postseason? I think Lil Isaac is coming back soon this week. It might even be later today. Um, you know, I think Lil Isaac can really be a really interesting weapon for them. Um, and I think he'll he would definitely have an opportunity to be part of any, you know, creative configurations they do, but you know, uh, there's still six weeks to go until that. And so I'm really interested to see what they set him up for, you know, Severino and Batances at this point, they really are just saying, take your damn time, you know, just, just get, get ready for, for late September, get some reps in and then, you know, come out and be weapons in October. And I think, you know, Severino and Batances have actually sounded more encouraged over the last couple of days than I think I've heard them all season. Um, Batances threw a bullpen yesterday and his face just kind of lit up when we asked him how it went. You know, he was like, the ball was coming out really well. I haven't felt this good all year. And so I, I think their best move is to let these guys play the long game. And then, yeah, I think they can be Luis Severino and Dylan Batances when it comes to October, if, if they're set up correctly. All right. Uh, I, I uh, sort of envy the the position you're in. Cause you, you know, you know, you've got a team that's going to the playoffs and uh, there's going to be relatively, dra- relatively little drama, but like you can go ahead and, and beat Tom Verducci to that. Uh, Yankees, uh, Yankees position players versus Astros pitchers feature for the for the postseason. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, I'm realizing that I'm really happy I don't cover a National League team because when they released the schedule the other day, we were in Baltimore, and let's be honest, I would rather book 25 hotels through Marriott.com than watch another Orioles bludgeoning right now, <laughs> and I. And I looked at the at the wild card standing uh, for the National League, and I was like, "No, no, I would I would just be booking a hotel two days before." It's, yeah, it's you know it's it's interesting not to have to think about a division race right now, and like you said, to kind of think about <laughs> beating Tom Verducci to some sort of Yankees feature, which will never happen. But it's it's a nice thing to dream about, I guess. Yeah, I, I I will say like as a as a fan like playoff or, or uh, pennant races are fun, but as a reporter who has to like plan ahead, that's uh it's a little stressful. So I'm I'm happy I for know. you that that you don't have to uh, figure out if you're going to have to work this October. Um, but uh, so I look forward to to seeing what you uh, come out with over the the next few weeks, uh, and uh, you know we'll check back in the playoffs. Yeah, yes, we will. See what happens. Maybe when we get there, everything I've said today just sounds like stupid bullshit, but I guess we'll find out. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. 
When you're looking for new furniture, there's a lot to consider, like how you're going to get it in the door or how comfortable it will be when the game goes to extra innings. And Burr is changing all of that with simple, adaptable, easy-to-move furniture that can be assembled and disassembled in just a few minutes. Plus, it ships to your door fast and free. Now, if you've listened to the show at all, you know I have a Burr love seat. It is nice to look at. It's got a you know, simple minimalist design that I like a lot. It was very, very easy to put together. It just came to my apartment in a couple boxes. You open up the packaging, you snap the pieces together, you pull a couple levers, and that's it. No complicated tools, no 30-page instruction manuals. Burr's clever design features naturally scratch and stain-resistant fabric, plus sturdy hardwood frames and soft foam cushions. There's even a USB charger built into the furniture. Burrow is totally customizable, so you can pick one of five fabric colors, three leg finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and you can even add a chaise lounge or ottoman. Plus, they just launched the Nomad Leather Collection, featuring their same convenient design with the option of top grain Italian leather upholstery. Give your living room the upgrade it deserves with Burrow, the official sofa of the ringer. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. All right, and we're back with a uh, writer and podcaster and general man about internet, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? Hello, sir. I'm doing well. Uh, you know who's not doing well? Who's that? The Minnesota Twins. You don't say. Yeah, um, they're they're having a rough time of it. Uh, they are on track to become, I think, the the second team ever to be as many as eleven and a half games up in a division and uh, not finish that season in first place. This yeah, is that a, was a, a complicated fun fact that, that Jason Stark tweeted. It's uh, I think it, it's only when the second place team is uh, 11 and a half games back or more. So there have been comebacks by teams that were not in second place, but were say in third and fourth and overcame greater deficits. So it's it's a lot of games to come back from. I think we can say that much. And all right, this is not like the 1951 uh, Giants or the 1995 Mariners. This is uh, like the the Indians have caught the Twins as of today. They were back mm-hmm. in first place. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wrote a little bit right after the deadline about how uh, the Twins, they obviously have this all-time great offense. Uh, they And their pitching staff has been, you know, it's had its ups and downs. Jose Barrios has been great. Um, Jake Odorizzi's been great. Michael Pineda uh, has been good and shockingly healthy, I say, even though he's on the IL right now. And they went out and got not even like top end relievers. You know, far be it for me to impugn Gamecock World Series here or uh, College World Series here, Sam Dyson. But, uh, you know, they didn't exactly go out and get like like Will Smith and Ken Giles. You know, this is uh, they they got two okay dudes. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I thought to be totally honest, it'll probably still be enough to get them into the playoffs. But, you know, if they wind up in a wild card game with, you know, Tampa or Oakland, that's like that's a real roll of the dice. And from as good as they looked, uh, you know, a couple months ago, this is a this is a problem now. Yeah, we did very briefly pan their trade deadline performance when we did our post-deadline pod. They were not the least active contending team at the deadline, but I think they could have done more. And Dyson's a good reliever, but he almost immediately got hurt and pitched poorly and then went on the IL with biceps tendonitis. So that's tough, but they could have used a starter. And I think to their credit, they tried. <laughs> they tried yes, to get absolutely. one. Like yeah. it's not, they were under no illusions about needing one. They just... You know, I think from uh, what either Tad Levine or um, or Derek Falvey said, I forget who exactly um, ended up getting quoted. 
that they were just waiting for the price to drop on some of these guys and it never happened. And right. you know, maybe that maybe they end up being the big losers from the the non-existence of uh the August waiver trade period because maybe there's you know a couple of these players could have slipped through waivers and they could have gotten a deal done. Yeah, they were reportedly in on everyone and they were being asked for their top two prospects and Byron Buxton, at least in one deal, which would have made this sort of a lateral move. But I wouldn't say that the Twins have collapsed, even though they have lost this large lead. They've played okay, even during this time when Cleveland has overtaken them. I think the Twins are 31 and 29 since they were atop the division with that giant lead, which is not great, but they've been overtaken by the team that's been playing the best of of anyone in baseball. So things have not gone quite as well for the Twins. Some of the guys who were really getting them out to that great start, like Jake Odorizzi, like Martin Perez, those guys have kind of cratered. And I think the defense has taken a step back with Byron Buxton out. He's very important on the defensive side, whether or not he's hitting. But they have continued to hit. It's just that the defense, the pitching have not been up to Cleveland's level because Cleveland's level has been very, very lofty and tough to keep up with, which, you know, I I think to some extent, this is sort of a a victory, I guess, for the preseason projections, right? Because this is what we thought would happen. We thought coming into the year that Cleveland would be the best. This isn't what we thought would happen. No, we didn't think it would be giant lead and then lose the giant lead. We kind of thought that Cleveland would just win this division fairly handily or at least I did. And that's not to say that we didn't criticize their complete lack of activity over the winter, because of course we did. And they could have done much more earlier on. They spent much of the winter talking about trading people away instead of acquiring people, instead of extending a qualifying offer to Michael Brantley. And they went into the season trusting guys like Carlos Gonzalez and Hanley Ramirez, and that backfired and they didn't hit at all for the first couple months of the season. And then they had to change their roster around and make trades and promote people. And so to some extent, they got burned a bit for not doing more over the winter, as I think we accused them of at the time. But part of the reason that they didn't do more was that they thought, well, it's a weak division and we're good enough as it is. And maybe they were right in the long run, even though it was a lot more anxiety inducing than we thought it would. But this is still a real race. It's not like, you know, Cleveland's a half game up right now. So this is far from over. Yeah, at the same time, and you know, I know you've gotten on my case for believing in momentum in the past, but like, yeah, this is going one way. I certainly don't think that Cleveland's going to continue to to play 720 baseball for the the rest of the year, which is what they've done since yeah. the that division lead was was at its peak of 11 and a half games. Um, but you know, Corey Kluber's on his way back mm-hmm. and uh you know, they don't look like they're missing Trevor Bauer at all. Uh you know, it, some of these The timeline doesn't line up exactly, but I really liked what the Twins did this offseason, going out and getting Marwin Gonzalez, Jonathan Scope, um, and really reinforcing a solid young core. And I, you know, they it's like they got all their shopping done in the offseason. They Mm -hmm. got out to this huge lead, and then Cleveland made the they finally made that big deal. You know, and I was saying, if you're going to trade Trevor Bauer, what are you going to get that's going to help you contend before Francisco Lindor becomes free agent? And you know what? They did pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, Puig and, and Framil Reyes were exactly what the doctor ordered. And with Kluber coming back, with Mike Clevenger coming back, you know, some of the I don't know how much I trust Zach Plezak in the long term, but Shane Bieber looks like the fucking goods right now. Yes. And <laughs> uh 
if you develop a Shane Bieber, then that gives you the opportunity to to trade a Trevor Bauer mm-hmm. and to get back not just Reyes and Puig, but Logan Allen and a couple other prospects who could end up helping in the long term. So, yeah. you know, their pitching looks fine right now, and they've filled those holes in the outfield. And they, I mean, they look really strong. I don't know if I put them in like the Yankees tier or the, or the Astros, certainly not the Astros tier, but I, you know, I'm not sure they're significantly worse on paper. And the other thing is like Jose Ramirez is actually hitting like Jose Ramirez right. again. And which was, I mean, that was all he was not going to, you know, continue to produce a 500 OPS all year. So like this is the, we talk about regression to the mean and like, sometimes it happens all at once. And this is just sort of what happened over the, the past two months with Cleveland, that they got back to, they underperformed and then they, they overperformed. And now they're more or less a team we thought they'd be. Yeah, the turnaround is really interesting. It's not just one thing that has propelled them back to the top here because I just talked about how, yes, the preseason projections said that Cleveland was the best team in the division, but the preseason projections were counting on Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco to have healthy, productive seasons, and that hasn't happened. And yet other members of that pitching staff have really stepped up. So it's Bieber, who was my breakout pick for the year. I'm going to brag about that because so rarely do I actually make predictions and so rarely are they right when I do, but he's been even better than I figured he'd be. And then in the absence of Kluber and Krasko, they've had guys like Plesak and Adam Pletko. Pletko has been pretty good. And now Aaron Savale has kind of come out of nowhere and he's been good. And so they've cobbled together this really strong rotation out of guys who weren't expected to be that great. And, you know, Clevenger came back from injury and, and he's been excellent too. So that's part of it. And yeah, you figure if they can get anything out of Kluber and, and Carrasco the rest of the way and Danny Salazar, who's just recently returned, that's really encouraging. Everything is pointing up for Cleveland and for Minnesota. I don't know if it's pointing down in some cases, maybe it is. Nelson it's just Cruz. pointing sideways, which yeah, might as well, least. you know, which is down relatively when, Right. Like I said, when Cleveland's win, win in three out of four. Yeah, and and Nelson Cruz has a, a wrist problem now, which even if it doesn't sideline him, you have to worry about wrist problems with power hitters. And yeah, again, with Cleveland, it's not just the changes they've made and the players they've promoted who've performed well, but it's the trade they made. At least Puig has been great since he was brought over. And then it is guys who were there but were not performing. Jose Ramirez, as you mentioned, Jason Kittis is another one who looked like he might be done. And he's been very productive during this run that they've had. Ramirez is back to his old form. And they have remade themselves on the fly even before the Puig trade where, you know, they brought up Tyler Naquin and Oscar Mercado. And those guys have been better than the sort of stiffs that they started the season with in the outfield. That's kind of cruel, but it's true. So I think it's it's all of these things kind of coming together and making them the team that we thought they'd be, or, or at least performing like the team we thought they'd be, but not necessarily with the roster that we thought it would have. I think the most encouraging thing, if you're a Twins fan right now, is that they do have a weaker schedule the rest of the way, I think significantly so. They have more games left against the Royals, the Tigers, you know, the dregs of this division. I think fewer games against NL contending teams. So Cleveland has a tougher time. And these two teams do play each other twice for three game series in September, 
which has the potential to be really riveting because if this continues to be close then, then we'll have a, a showdown where maybe those games will actually swing the outcome of this race. And I'm glad we have this race because I didn't really expect there to be an AL Central race. And now we've got a really close and fun one. And it's kind of all we have in the American League right now. I, I guess there's an A's Rays wild card race, sort of. I was going to say you're not into the the A's yeah. and Rays wild card. I'm I'm that, interested in that. Yeah, that's something. I mean, you know, there's no AL West division title race uh, at this point. There doesn't appear to be an AL East division title race. So there's A's Rays, and then you figure that Cleveland and Minnesota, one of them will take the division, and one of them will take the wild card. But this obviously it matters uh, to win the division over the wild card in this era. So this is going to be really fascinating over the rest of the season. This may be the the best storyline or or the best race remaining. I can tell you're charged up about this because you said stiffs and dregs and (laughs) invokes your own predictions uh, in the same monologue. You're really like- feeling it. Yeah. You had your Wheaties this morning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. I- Kind of thought that Cleveland would just win in a walk in this division, even though I didn't think they were as good a team as they had been in previous years. And then the Twins come out of the gate and they're one of the most exciting teams this season. And they've got this gangbusters offense and a new coaching staff and doing interesting things with analytics. And that was fun to see them get out to that big lead. But now I think this latest twist where that lead has been entirely erased just makes it all the better, at least if you're not a Twins fan. This has been a really literary AL Central race because uh, for the like, I don't I don't think either of us were actually as pissed at Cleveland as Zach was uh, yeah. this offseason. Um, <laughs> but like what they did was just really hubristic, you know, and yeah. that that banking on like we can put together an 86 win team with a good pitching staff and win the division anyway. And, you know, a, a lot of the stuff we trashed them for wasn't even stuff that they did it was stuff that they were talking about doing which mm-hmm. is not to say that you know letting Brantley walk or not uh not upgrading the outfield or you know not making the kind of moves that, that Minnesota did um was was smart but you know they thought they could get away with it and uh it was good to see them like laid low briefly by a team that what that did all the things that that they weren't doing in the offseason. You know, the Twins had a pretty aggressive offseason. And like you said, bringing in Rocco Baldelli and Wes Johnson and and overhauling that that front office. Like we just wrote off that that front office is reactionary for so long. And now they're, you know, they're what they're doing is I don't know if it's cutting edge, but it's definitely uh you know, up to yeah, you know, up to the the standards of what you'd expect from a, a well-run major league organization, mm-hmm. and you know, all of a sudden, one of these teams that is not only like was not only bad, but just sort of mismanaged for a long time, it was good enough to to really you know, come up and bite Cleveland, and so like they were punished for that, but not so much that they just got completely knocked out of the race. And now we're you know we've got this interesting contrast of styles. We have the the or defending champion and and the challenger and you know I think this makes for a really I hope it stays this close mm-hmm. um down the stretch cuz like this is just a really well for lack of a better way to put it just a really well plotted out season so far yeah i think so the the twins have had probably as dramatic a revolution a, a turnaround in the way that they're run as any organization over the past few years and They've really remade the kind of player they go after, even as they've remade the coaching staff where, you know, they have more strikeouts now after years of avoiding strikeout pitchers 
they are going to break the all-time home run record, which is very out of character for the Twins, who, mm-hmm. as Aaron Gleeman pointed out recently, have been, I think, out-homered as a team in something like 26 out of the last 27 seasons. You just don't really expect to see the Twins as the superpower team, and yet that's what they are. So it's been a lot of fun. I think what is interesting is you know which of these teams is better positioned to make a playoff run. Assuming they both get there, I mean, I don't know that there's that big a difference between, say, Bieber and Barrios or, or whoever Cleveland's best starter is when it when it comes to wildcard time. So I don't know if there's a, a big difference there. But once you get into a longer series, you could see Cleveland by the time the playoffs run around, depending on who's healthy at that point, they could be the more imposing postseason team just because if they do go, you know, four deep, if they can roll Bieber out there and Clevenger and Kluber and Carrasco and we'll see who's around and who's performing at that point. But I think they'd be a little bit scarier as a playoff team, assuming Minnesota, you know, has the same sort of rotation they have right now, which there's no way to to change it significantly at this point. So I think that's something to be said for Cleveland too. And and I think their defense has been part of this turnaround too. They're a really good defensive team right now, the way that they're currently configured. So I'd be more afraid of Cleveland probably as we can project right now going into the postseason. And this is, you know, I, it's interesting that we both sort of defaulted the, to that. I think just because their pitching is better, you know, yeah. their, their lineup is nowhere near as good as Minnesota's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we still sort of default to that defense wins championships kind of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering like, is that something that that we ought to be doing? Is the game changing, you know, to to the point where like I I almost you know having seen that that 2017 World Series, particularly Game Two, where just every you know everything happened in the blink of an eye, and like good relief pitchers uh, just melted down, you know, Kenley Jansen, mm-hmm. Ken Giles, and and guys like that, you know, it's I, I wonder if like if you have anything but like the absolute best pitchers. Uh, that we ought to just be thinking about the playoff ball as, as some kind of equalizer. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably do too. We do make too much of the idea that defense or pitching or pitching whatever case, yeah. wins championships. I, I think that maybe there's kind of a mystique built up around that because scoring does decrease in the playoffs because, of course, you've got colder weather and you've got good pitching staffs and good defense. And so scoring's goes down across the board and we sort of infer from that, I guess, that whoever is best at at limiting run scoring is best at winning in October. I don't know that that's really the case. I mean, if you've got a good offense, that's still an asset. You can still slug your way to a title. And I genuinely like haven't looked at empirical research on this recently, mm-hmm. so I don't even know if there there is any. But yeah, well, yeah, I think I, it's it's hard to look at historical data and say that it applies to the postseason today because I think managers have changed how they handle their rosters in the playoffs right now, and I think that does lend some credence to the idea that pitching matters because teams are more aggressive these days. I think about concentrating the innings in October in the hands of their best pitchers, whether that is 
bringing in your relievers, working the best relievers really hard, or, you know, going with a bullpen game instead of like the fringy fourth starter who once might have gotten a playoff start. I I just think that at this point, if you have a a playoff staff, a, a pitching staff that's not particularly deep, I mean, it just doesn't matter who your fifth starter is or, you know, your eighth reliever at this point, because I think if you have a, a solid core of, say, three really good starters and, you know, four or five good bullpen guys, then you can use them almost exclusively in the playoffs mm-hmm. because of the off days. And I think teams have realized that and been more aggressive about that. And so I think a team like Cleveland, and obviously they've had success in the playoffs before going with, you know, working relievers really hard and having a few good starters. And they haven't even had their whole rotation together in some of their recent playoff runs, which is maybe why they went so, so hard on the bullpen. But if they do get, you know, three or four really good starters healthy and pitching together by the time the playoffs roll around, I think that is an advantage. Like proportionately speaking, also, I just think, you know, we look at the full season stats when we're comparing teams when they go into the playoffs, but these rosters, we really should be comparing who's actually on the playoff roster. And for Cleveland, I think the difference between their full season roster and their playoff roster will probably be bigger be yeah. than than Minnesota's difference just because Cleveland's made more in-season changes and upgrades and they've had more injury absences and guys they could potentially get back. So I think by that point, they will probably be a, a better team than Minnesota will be. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing complicating the pitching analysis is, I mean, for all the, the science and, and close observation, like, you know, the Indians just rode Josh Tomlin and Ryan Merritt to the World Series a couple years ago. Like <laughs> yeah. just last year, Nathan Eovaldi turned into 1924 Walter Johnson. Like, yeah, I, there's as I, I mean, we say this all the time and it's unsatisfying, but it's also true. Like you can't predict baseball. So it's mm-hmm. tough to to know, like, which of these guys are going to step up. And it, even, you know, even players who have a track record of, of performance like that's not a guarantee. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I like the way that Cleveland's roster is set up now. Um, just it's less that like I'm convinced that, that Bieber or Zach Plesak is going to go out there and throw a complete game shutout in game seven of the ALCS or whatever. It's just I don't know who I don't know which of Minnesota's pitchers I like right now, except for Barrios. Right you now. And mm-hmm. the, like you don't need you don't need 13 good pitchers, but you need at least two. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the Minnesota's got that. So I think that right. like it would behoove them to to win the division perhaps more than any other team that's that's sort of teetering on that edge. Yeah. Well, I mean, Barrios gives them a, as good a shot to win the wild card game as anyone on on. Is that an roster, advantage probably. against Kluber or Charlie Morton or you know? I, well, but you I know, don't know if he, it's an advantage, but it's not a great disadvantage. We don't even know no, what Kluber will yeah, be at that point. I think that's true, and, and we the, don't need to get into like what's an ace, but like no, yeah, but, I, I think like he could keep you in that game for sure. Right? Yeah, I, I guess he didn't against the Yankees in the wild card game, but but yes, he could. He has the potential to. And then I think that the Twins have more potential to be exposed the longer the series goes because you can only throw Brios a couple times and you've got to cobble together the rest of that rotation with guys who have not been performing well recently, whether it's Perez or Odorizzi or Gibson or maybe Pineda will be back by that point, but who knows? Oh, boy. Well, this is a, a definitely, like you said, more drama than I thought we were going to get out of this division. Yeah, uh, I know. Probably at fun. any point. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so we're going to track that, and uh, we're going to talk again next week. But until then, thanks for coming on. All right, see ya. 
That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me. And thanks also to my special guest, Lindsay Adler. You can find her work at The Athletic and her tweets at Lindsay Adler. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Jorge Soler, Glaber Torres, and Shane Bieber for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.